party people! Welcome to another episode of Chance by Chance. This is a resource for young creators as we, together, learn to navigate the professional field. And there is one heck of an episode in store for us today. I recently sat down with Clint Allen, a producer and actor in the Twin Cities, to talk about life. The way we think life should be versus the way life actually is. There's an important distinction there. It's often overlooked, but we get into that at some length in this episode, along with a great deal of other things. Clint is the executive producer of creative content at General Mills. Since 2005, he's been managing budgets and timelines, advising on creative and executional considerations. He attended Hanover College and the Juilliard School to develop himself as an actor. He's lived and worked in New York City and Los Angeles. At the tail end of the 90s, he began work as a freelance producer and in 2004 as a unit production manager. Clint has served as president on St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists Board of Directors and as an advisory board member for the Twin Cities Film Fest. You can find him performing at Theater in the Round on March 24th through mid-April. His upcoming show is The Three Musketeers, and it should be a whole lot of fun. This episode is one that I needed. This podcast has really been amazing because I'm fortunate enough to sit down with people who can advise and guide me wherever I am in my life, and this particularly struck a chord for a number of reasons. I'm especially fortunate because I get to share it with all of you. It's a really happy medium. Conversations are fantastic, and podcasts are where it's at in a lot of ways today. If you've been enjoying Chance by Chance, please head on over to my website, chancebychance.com, to hopefully spread some goodness and also to find every episode. There's a newsletter you can sign up for. I would really recommend doing that so you can get all new content delivered directly to your email inbox. But that's enough rambling from me for now. Open up your hearts and let in the wonderful words of Clint Allen. Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for sitting down with me. We're here at Theater in the Round. In the past year, you've been in a number of shows here. Is this your third? This is my third show in the last year, yeah. What has kept you around this venue? Do you have any sort of uh, relationship with the people here? or I do now. Okay. Um, I didn't prior. I, you know, I, I took a break from the stage. I hadn't done a play in 16 years. October a year ago, on my college had a theater reunion, my alma mater, and <laughs> so I was the chair of that, and we went back, and first theater reunion they'd had, because our professor, who was like in his mid-80s, was, you know, was like, all right, if we're going to do this, we need to do this now, so uh, we had people from like five generations, like from five decades that come, came back, Wow. we staged a play in a week, <laughs> and he directed it, and he was running around, hanging lights, painting sets, and it was like old times back in college, and it just, the bug bit me again, and... I only had a small part, but it was super, super fun. Hmm. And uh, I was like, you know, when I get back to the cities, I'm going to audition. And so Theater in the Round is a community theater. It's probably one of, if not the best community theater in, in the Twin Cities. And it's geared for working professionals, people like myself who have a job, who maybe used to be in theater, or people who are trying to kind of get into theater. So you kind of get people on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. You don't get paid. Um, they have budgets. They pay their directors a little bit, and then they have budgets. You know, it's... Uh, and I've auditioned here a little bit over the years, but never booked anything. And then last year, first thing that came up was uh, Richard III, Shakespeare, which I had done when I was in acting school in New York. And I played the same role. I told him, the director, I said, I'll play any role but Richard. I don't want to <laughs> come back after 16 years and take on that big of a role. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I did Jekyll and Hyde last fall, and now I'm doing Three Musketeers. So. And it sounds like this has been quite the process, right? Oh, my right? God, this is so fun. I feel like a five-year-old kid up here, seriously, <laughs> like running around with swords and silly. And, you know, it's just, it's been, and that's part of why I, when I came back, I did Richard last year, and we were doing texts, and I was running around backstage, and hmm. theater people are just the most irreverent people <laughs> there are. Oh, like yeah. you, I have to try and keep up. I'm pretty irreverent, but I can't. It's it's like nobody gets offended about anything. It's like it's just <laughs> balls of the wall all the time, and I love that. Mm. I just love that environment. There's nothing quite like it, a place where you can just play every day yeah. and, and experiment yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, it's so fun. 
It's so fun. And, and now that I'm older, I don't care as much, and it's, I'm not doing it as a career. Hmm. It's not like, oh shit, what if I don't get this job? What if I'm not really good? I'm doing it now because it's, uh, for the reason I did it originally, which is because it's fun, hmm. and I love it. And I feel like I'm probably better than I was years ago just because I don't care as much. I mean, I, I do it in a different way, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's just, I'm more relaxed, and that, that just comes with being what, older. What, uh, held you back before I you know I had kids and I had to earn a living and you know I was working in film production and uh, film production you have crazy hours and you always have to be ready you can't you know I did audition for the Guthrie and a couple other places and I'd get called back and then they'd be like well will you take this role because it's like you know the money is okay there but it's not like what I was making in the film business and like I said with kids and then I'd run them around to you know, soccer and football and circus and these things that they did you know so it was like I wanted to be there my dad was not around much when I was growing up so I was determined I was going to be there and involved in my boy's life and I was tremendously but I wasn't a helicopter parent I coached and the best conversations we had always were driving in the car to around hmm. town to all the practices and stuff what is it that brought you to fear in the first place I was a jock growing up, you know, I played everything, you know, I was an athlete, and then, but I was always a clown and a ham. My parents <laughs> fought a lot, and that was my way to change the mood and the environment, was, to, that was to ham it up. So I would do pratfalls, you know, and <laughs> I'd make fun of my mom, and my sister laughed at everything. <laughs> she had to run to the bathroom because she was peeing so, because from laughing so hard. And, <laughs> you know, I just was a clown from when I was a little kid. My cousins used to tell me, be the funny man, Hank. My nickname was Hank because my cousin couldn't say Clint. <laughs> so she called me Hank, and it stuck. There's still people at home that call me Hank. And so I just learned that I could make people laugh and just, just by being a goofball. And I'm still a goofball. Anybody who knows me will tell you that. That's, I'm just like, it's just, why not? It's just fun. Yeah. How did that start to click then? Because you went to school for theater. Yeah, so I, again, I said, I, you know, I... I didn't really. I did a one play when I was in like seventh or eighth grade. It's a play called How to Propose. I was the narrator, and then I was a musician as well. I played the drums, like my son. I was asked to play in the swing choir in high school, and the guy who was the director of the swing choir, Vance Hayes, who's the man who sent me on my life, he said, "I want to do a, a musical. Our your senior year, I want to do a, a musical." So. We did Oliver, and he cast me as Fagin, and that was it. I was smitten when wow. I came out for the applause, and it was like, oh my god! And I just had so much fun, like you know, singing and dancing and running around, and it was like that kid clown in me hmm. had a place to live, you hmm. know. And that was it. When I when I was in high school, I was in everything. I was president of the class, and president of this and that, and you know, played sports. And I, when I got to college, I did nothing. But theater. I lived, breathed, ate, slept theater. I didn't do anything else. I was in a frat, but that was only because they ran out of dorm space. <laughs> they put us in a frat, and we joined that frat because there was a bunch of theater people there. And that was at uh, Hanover, Hanover College, yeah, in southeastern Indiana, hmm. where our illustrious vice president went to college <laughs> at the same time that I did, actually. Did you grow up in Indiana? Yes, I grew up in southwestern Indiana near Evansville. What brought you to the Twin Cities? My ex-wife. Really? Yeah. Uh, she was from here, and I met her at acting school in New York, and then first time I came here, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Hmm. She had, you know, she grew up in a big house on Lake Minnetonka. Her dad was an oral surgeon, and man, when I went to that big old house built in the 1890s, I was like, this is pretty dope. This is all right. Yeah, not bad at <laughs> I all. Could, I could do this. Yeah. But it just, I just loved it here. I mean, the people, and and now I love it even more. It's just such a great, you know, I've lived in New York and L.A. and Houston and Louisville, and, and I've lived all around, and this city has, it's big enough to where it has everything, arts, sports, culture, great schools, everything, but it's not too big and it's not too expensive, and it's beautiful and well taken care of, and I love it here. How have you seen the culture here develop in the past couple of decades? It's certainly turned more purple. Purple? Yeah, in terms of a political state. Um, I mean, it was very, you know, dyed-in-the-wool blue, uh, blue state. I think St. Paul has changed tremendously. It was truly a small town when I first lived here, like just mm. 
you know, as my friend said, they rolled up the sidewalks at six o'clock in the evening. It was just like there was nobody down there. That's changed the amount of construction and like North Loop. I mean, just like people, it's just booming. <laughs> and I go all around. I travel around and I, I drive. I love to drive. I drive through a lot of cities and stuff. And whenever I'm come back and drive in Minneapolis, I'm always like, gosh, it, it's just so clean and there's so much going on here. I mean, it's just growing constantly. But I don't think it's ever going to overgrow because people are afraid of the cold. <laughs> and I'm just like, yep, it's freaking freezing. Just stay away. Keeps it balanced. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you are the uh, senior producer of creative content at General Mills. Is that the name of your yeah, title? Yeah, I'm a, a, yeah. I mean, we're getting a new title, executive producer. So basically what I do is I help the brands kind of get their commercials and videos made. So I sort of I worked as a, as a consultant and intermediary between the brands and the ad agencies. Uh, getting their commercials made because that's what I used to do is produce TV commercials hmm. so they hired me 12 years ago to come in and sort of do that for them yeah I'm really interested in digging into this a yeah. bit because working like that on a a tight schedule mm-hmm. you know when you are uh, obligated to be producing content every day or every week how do you keep yourself up to that task keep yourself healthy and happy amidst you know all, all of that happening well, I'm lucky in one sense in that I'm not the um, the hands-on producer mm-hmm. at the ad agency or at the production company who's having to hire all the vendors and hire the crew people and, and sort of run the show, if you will. I'm more of an oversight kind of a thing. So I can have anywhere from one to six to eight projects going on at the same time. Mm. So that can be a little challenging sometimes to keep them all straight, you know. And uh, But I've been doing it so long. Like, I don't have to... I don't have to think a lot. <laughs> I can react pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, it's so second nature to me now, which is, it's great. It's really nice because I don't ever hate or dread going to work. I love what I do. You know, it's, yeah. It feeds both sides of me, the creative side, because it's very creative. But also I've got this kind of nerdy, linear, organized <laughs> side that I really like. Like I have a spreadsheet <laughs> on Hippocampus that I've been keeping track for a year and a half, like every single day. I put down how many likes, how many listens. I average out every month. I average year. It's it's a hundred, over a hundred pages Excel spreadsheet. Oh my gosh, it's man! It's insane. Wow. I'm I'm love history and I love recording things and so I'm kind of you know the the family all jokes that I'm like the the curator of the band, like the historian, you know. So coming from me and mm-hmm. I, I've been developing this managerial sort of persona as well. I've had the creative side like mm-hmm. you for mm-hmm. quite a while, but as time goes on, I'm starting to see more of that linear uh, yeah. way of thinking in myself. How did you start to develop that? Well, I think it was always there. When I was young, I just didn't realize it. I mean, hmm. As I look back, I've always been kind of just organized and just little things like my room. You know, I was never a slob. I and mean, things were just like, I, I, I'm aesthetic. You know, I kind of like things. Yeah in somewhat of an order, but yet in a creative way. And so that was always kind of there. And then, you know, I wanted to be an actor, so I just, that was, you know, I was going to be an actor. I was going to be the next, you know, great whatever, Robert Redford or whatever. That was. And then when I was, um, about 10 years after I left college, we came back and did a, a production at my uh, undergrad alma mater. And I was in it, and I kind of oversaw a thing. I was sort of the the union liaison and I just kind of took on somewhat of a producer role and um, someone who was a friend of mine said you're really good at this you'd be a good producer and I was like what <laughs> well, I don't, you know so that's kind of like when I sort of started putting two and two together and realized and then I when I was living in an LA in LA I started working a friend of mine was a producer and he said you know I was driving limousines and all kinds of stupid things to try mm-hmm. and stay alive and he said why don't you come and work for me on a film set he produced music videos back in the day. So my first job was a They Might Be Giants video. Cool. And I was a PA, and I wore, like, a jacket, you know, and somebody thought I was the director, you know. <laughs> it was like, so I just learned the business, and I was, it just was like a duck to water. I was like, oh, I get this. Organize a cube truck with production stuff? No problem. <laughs> like, I, mean, I loved it. I just, it just fit. And it was still in the creative world. Yeah. Know? So slowly but surely I worked my way up you know, and started coordinating and eventually started producing. And now I've realized that that's a skill set that bleeds over into all kinds of things. Sure. It's, it's basically you just get shit done. You know, I always say it's like 
I understand creative and the process of it, but I also know where everybody's going to park. <laughs> like, you know, so I've, I've got that kind of, and it's fun. I love it. To lend some advice on this point, mm -hmm. say there's some young artists in the community mm -hmm. with a jumble of ideas in their head, how do they start to bring that about? I thought about this, you know, coming here. I think the, one of the biggest things I always try to tell young artists is don't, don't wrap your self-identity, don't wrap who you are and your self-worth up in your art hmm. or in anything you do. Hmm. You have to first and foremost be okay with yourself. I did not know this when I lived in L.A. And when things went south, things had gone really well for me up to that point. You know, I was like college and then I was at Louisville, Actors Theater in Louisville, and then I was to Juilliard and then I was on Broadway and it was like it just things kept clicking and then I stupidly moved to LA hmm. and I lost my agent and things started going south and I was like I was failing quote hmm. unquote and I got really discouraged and when you get discouraged you reek you look smell act like someone who's discouraged and I did not know how to get out of it because I I put my self-worth in what it was that I was doing as an artist and as an actor and if I wasn't succeeding then I feel I felt like a failure hmm. and that set me back years and it took me years to, to get out of that and when I came back here I felt like I had failed I set out to do this thing and you know because there's a set of circumstances that brought us back to Minnesota now I'm extremely happy that I came back here and left that godforsaken place and <laughs> I finally learned to when I was in my early 40s I finally learned that I'm okay as a person regardless of my external situation like and I read this book called The Power of Now, and it changed my life. And it was like, I'm, I'm not my thoughts, you know. And I learned how to be present and to be okay with that. And it, it changed my life in ways that I wanted it to, and it changed my way, life in ways that I didn't want it to. So it goes. Yeah. So I guess to your, your question, if you have things that you want to do, you know, and I just did a, a play at the Fringe Festival last year that I've been working on for 20 years. I, f I first did it 20 years ago for like 15 minutes at Patrick's Cabaret. It's a one-man show that I wrote and performed about, you know, growing up in Indiana and just things. And it went really well, and I had such a tremendous feeling of accomplishment, you know, because I, I, I just finally fucking did it. Yeah. And the reason I did it was because deadlines. Deadlines are the greatest asset to any artist, however you create them. Commit yourself to something like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I get a fringe slot, and don't not take it. You can drop out, you know, into, but to make, set it. Force yourself, give yourself deadlines. Have someone say, I'm gonna commission you or something. Because you can come up with all kinds of excuses. It's so much easier to not do what it is that you really, really think you wanna do. That's the truth, yeah. And discipline is, is extremely difficult. I finally got to the point where I realized that this thing I wrote and performed was like, you know, they always say, find your voice, you know, it's like, and I realized that that's my voice. I just tell stories. Like, I'm a good storyteller, and I'm parties and hanging out with family and friends and stuff. <laughs> I tell these stories, and people are cracking up, and I tell them stories about my family and how crazy it was and shit, and people can't believe it. So I just started doing that, and it just falls out of me. It's kind of effortless, but it took me 40-plus years to realize that after trying to write, you know come up with plots and write plays and screenplays and you know I always wanted to write and I did I'd written a ton of stuff in you know, a journal and I kind of stumbled onto this and that's the other thing too is like there's a lot of stumbling you know just keep your eyes open hmm. you know when we when we walk out of the door and we get in our car we have a direction right and this is obviously much more metaphorical than driving to work or whatever but it's like there's going to be things that are going to come along and, you know, somebody's going to slam you in the side and push you a different way. And if you're constantly fighting that, that flow of life, then that's what it feels like. You know, there's a lot of tension. I always say there's two approaches to life. There's the way you think life should be and then there's the way life is. <laughs> so you live life with the intention of what you think it should be, whatever that is for you. Hopefully it's kind and loving and all those kinds of things, but whatever that is for you. But then there's the way life is. People are greedy and mean and insecure and angry and, and they come along and they, they invade your space or they push, you know, and if you go, hey, what? You know, if you get caught into that energy and that, that hate and that anger, it's going to pull you off of your, as opposed to, whoa, okay, it's kind of a Tai Chi kind of like, because hmm. it's all energy. 
you know, and we want to label it as good or bad, you know, but it's just a, it's a different kind of energy and it's a really anxious energy that creates that fight or flight kind of thing in people. That's why there's so much, you know, angst in our culture and our world today. And, you know, back to your earlier question, I think that's the biggest change I've seen in the last 20 years with social media and all that is that it's just like, it's just constantly anxiety and it's all right in front of our face all the time. Mm. You used to have to come home, turn on the news, you know, or you, know, you heard about what's going on maybe once a day. Now it's in front of you all the time. Yeah. So, long-winded, which I tend to be. Me too. Um, the thing about it, young artists, if you've got dreams and passions, it's just like, don't, don't be in any rush. Don't think you've got to do it right now too because I mean go for it but try not to get discouraged and again mainly just don't put who you are wrapped up in what you're doing John Lennon said life is what happens when we're busy making plans you know? mm-hmm. and it's true problem is you don't realize until you're 50 and then you look back and go shit I was living some of the best years of my life and I was so caught up in worrying about everything that I didn't miss it all you know what I mean yeah but, and I'm, I mean, now I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I mean, even though I did not want to get divorced, that was a difficult thing to go through, which was also a, a somewhat of a result of my life-changing power of now kind of experience that I had. And I, when you decide, oh, I'm actually okay, and you become kind of a happier person, it's going to change your life. People respond to you differently. People you had in your life before who liked you because you were negative and they could feel better about themselves you know there's all that dynamic again it's just a change it shifts energy and so speaking about this shifting the the metaphor of being slammed in a different direction and rather than pressing against it following that new route i do want to look at some of these transitions you've had in your life so going from hanover to juilliard Mm -hmm. i i want to start there hear a little bit about the entry into that school in new york and Mm -hmm. an overview of the time there maybe summarized by some of the most influential mentors Mm -hmm. or relationships Mm -hmm. projects Mm -hmm. so i was at hanover and then my senior year i dropped out because i got accepted as an apprentice at actors theater in louisville kentucky which was a great opportunity Uh, i didn't get paid but i was you know there six days a week 12 hours a day acting classes being in plays just immersed in a professional theater. It was fantastic. There was a gentleman there, uh, Robert Rob Sparrow, who was one of my acting coaches. And then it was a student, there was an actor who was in one of the shows who had been at Juilliard, and he said, you should audition for Juilliard. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that was like, I, I had no self-confidence. I was like, that might as well just said, you, might, you should fly to the moon. I was like, what? And then my acting coach is like, absolutely. He goes, and here's what you should do. You should do Romeo's you know, balcony speech. I'm like, Every, that's the most overdone. He goes, yeah, but nobody does it well. <laughs> so he worked with me on it. And I, I was going to New York with my best friend, Woody Harrelson, actually. We went to college together at Hanover. No way. He didn't know that. No, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah. So we were going to move to New York together no matter what. So I was only going to audition for Juilliard because that was the only school in New York. There was all these other, there was, back then it was called League of acting schools, there was like 12 of them. There was like you know, North, uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, there was Yale, uh, Seattle, um, or University of Washington, the school down in, uh, down in Texas, SMU. Hmm. These were all considered the top acting schools in the country, but I was like, I, no, I only want to go, because people would go and audition for all of them and then hope they'd get in one. Hmm. I was like, I'm going to New York, so if I get in Juilliard, great, if not, that whatever. So I went to the auditions in Chicago along with some friends and I auditioned for them and everybody, all my other friends got rejection letters and I went in one day and got my mail and there was a big envelope and I was like, you've been accepted. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. I drove straight to Hanover because it was just down the road from where Louisville was, where Woody was and we partied. We just went crazy. <laughs> so then I went to Juilliard and it was very different. Very, you know, it's, it was, you know, movement classes in the morning, speech classes, di- uh, um, so there was voice and then speech classes, and then we'd rehearse a play at night, acting class. I mean, it was just all, it's all it was. Sounds and, intense. And it was, you know, right there with School of Music and then dancers. There's these little ballerinas running around all over the place. And, <laughs> and then I started dating my future wife there. And it was intense, but it was like, honestly, it was my, my theater experience in college. The mentor I had in college, Doc Evans, was probably the most influential person in my life in terms of theater. He was just the most passionate man. And 
great vision. And it was a lot about passion. And I got to Juilliard and it was a lot about, everybody wanted to wear like the right costumes and everybody was walking around trying to have the right diction and lose their accent. And it just got to this kind of stifling kind of, but there were a couple of teachers there. My voice teacher, Liz Smith was, she was, man, she was in your face. Like she just called a spade a spade. And she had this incredible voice and you know, she just like, she was, I loved her. She was no bullshit. And I loved that kind of teacher, you know, straight at it. And um, I had just started kind of finding my legs there. And then I, the summer between my second and third year at Juilliard, it's a four-year program, I met a manager. And then I got an agent and a Broadway show all in two weeks. Wow. It was just like, oh. And so obviously I didn't go back to school because I was doing this show. But I had already decided actually not to go back to school. I was so itching to work. So... The thing about Juilliard was, I could say more than anything, was it gives you some street cred. You know, oh, Juilliard, oh, people are instantly impressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may not be a very good actor, but plenty of people from there don't make it. Quote, Prestigious quote. name. Yeah. 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 But there are plenty of people, you know, I mean, nobody from my class became famous or well-known, but a lot of people still work in that in one form or another in the industry and so mm-hmm. forth. So, yeah, that was, it was just an opportunity as an actor that got you indoors you know, opened up a few more doors for you. And obviously, the woman who was my manager actually still manages Kevin Spacey to this day. Hmm. And he went to school there and we were friends and he was at my bachelor party because we were on Broadway at the same time. He was doing Long Day's Journey into Night. And so yeah, you know, you just, you rub, you rub shoulders with people like this just because you're just all starting out together, you know. I've had a crazy life, just amazing crazy. Life. I'm amazed already. Oh my! I mean, oh my, my I mean, I have resume. My resume is like you know, I was in that pilot episode of Nine Hundred Two One Zero. You know, I've seen the Kingpin and Dumb and Dumber, which are like these cult movies. You know, just because I knew the, the Fairley Brothers, it's like and people are always like, "Whoa!" I'm like, "Trust me, it just like it was so random shit." I have the craziest <laughs> resume in life. It's been amazing. What really a, amazing. What a ride. Oh. You know, and if I had known back then now, like they said, well, you're going to work at a General Mills and a corporation and you're going to be working at this little community theater and not getting paid in theater. And I'd be like, what? What happened? You know, and it's like, now I look back and it's like, my God, what an amazing life I had. You know, I have a different perspective on things. So what was it like being self-employed in New York after you'd left school? That's a, it's a vicious Well, I, I wasn't self-employed. I mean, I, I was, I, I got... A Broadway show, so yeah. I was hired by that. So that was, you know, and so I did that for 21 months. I did over 650 hmm. performances that show. <laughs> That's a whole unique experience in itself. I mean, going there eight days, eight times a week, and doing the exact same thing day in and day out. It's, it's, it's really strange, but it was amazing. You know, I mean, I used to walk around the whole in between shows on Saturdays. I'd walk around that whole district, Broadway district, and just be like, man, I'm on Broadway. <laughs> the, the people who have performed here and in, in the theater we were in like Jack Lemmon and Carol Channing and all these people who performed in that that theater itself I mean it, the list is huge it was I was so honored and so just like blown away by the whole experience my buddy got married and so I wanted to go to his wedding so I had to leave the show and that's also when we decided to move to LA now I was going to be I'm still auditioning for other stuff and I came close to doing a play with Ed Harris and that didn't work through and then you know, I had a good agent, a good manager, and I was getting up for a lot of stuff. And then I, Woody, was in L.A. doing Cheers, and he was like, move out of here, man, it's better out here. And our other roommate was out there. And that's the thing about being an artist, and that's part of also what kind of crushed my soul is when I got to L.A., I was not making a living as an artist. I had hmm. to go back and do stupid jobs again, driving is, limousines. Is this because you didn't have the connections that you did in Partly, New York? yeah. I mean, well, one of the things I did, the biggest mistake I ever made in my career was I dropped my manager when I moved to L.A. because she was only connected in New York at that time. She had not really grown to L.A. And I had a really good agent. My agent was like, you don't need her. You don't need her. You don't need her. <laughs> what I realized in hindsight was if you've got one person who is so passionate about you and they're connected and they're ready to fight for you no matter what, you hang on to them. Hmm. Unless they're just a miserable human being. Yeah. No. Uh, and, you know, and she, was, she was a character, but she was driven. Hmm. And when I lost her, then when things kind of started not working out as well in L.A., I would have had her to help me out, cover my back, help me make connections, get me into agents and stuff. And it was just kind of a... So then, then you get really depressed because you got to go back to 
driving limousines or bartending or whatever. And you're and meanwhile, the best at the same time, my best friend was becoming a, a star on Cheers. And then White Men Can't Jump. He was becoming this huge star. You know, I'd be driving home at two o'clock in the morning after driving limousines all day, and I'd stop, and there'd be a bus next to me, and on the side of the bus was a big, huge ad with Woody's picture at it, looking right at me for White Men Can't Jump. You know, he was a movie star, and I'm driving home at two thirty in the morning in my black tie, you know, exhausted, and driving with a limousine all day. It crushed me. It just crushed my soul. I just didn't know how to handle that. You know, I just. I felt like a complete failure. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> is this when you started to uh, to reek of despair? Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't get an agent to save my ass. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have an agent, you're not going to get auditions, and then you're not going to get work. And it was just like, and I, I, you know, I had a kid. My son was like three years old, and we were struggling just to get by every day. And you know, it was it was tough. It was really tough, but was what it was, you know. Did your ex-wife move to L.A. with you? Yes, because we were in New York. We got married while we were living in New York mm-hmm. in 86. And then, uh, yeah, we, we, it, was a, you know, it was a mutual decision. We made that decision together, so we moved out there. That's where my son was born. Shep. Was it hard coming to the Twin Cities, leaving, uh, you know, a, a vibrant Honestly, film culture Honestly, it was harder like for LA? her because... This was her home, and we ended up living in the home that she grew up in, actually. We bought the house that the people bought off of her parents. So she felt like she'd moved back home and was becoming her parents in Mm -hmm. a way, you know, which that, you know, we don't, none of us want to become our parents, you know, as much as we love them or whatever, you know, it's kind of like she was going to go off, and we both were going to go off and live this Hollywood life, and we were doing well for a while. When I was on Broadway, she was in a soap. She got a soap. We were making money, and I was like, here we go. We're going to just, you know, be successful. So, yeah, it was really hard, really hard to put a real strain on our marriage, and those first couple of few years back were really difficult. You know, I was painting my in-law's house for money, and it was a struggle. Was this when you found that book, or what was it that started to pull you out of your... your uh, so we moved back here when I was like 31, and then, like I said, I'd been working in film business in L.A. behind yeah. the camera, and then I didn't realize there was a film community here, so hmm. a couple years after we moved back, I started making connections and got started getting hired in, as a production assistant working in film in the industry here. Then that started to be, okay, now I'm getting some work and something I enjoy doing, and it's pretty decent money, and it was inconsistent, but it was enough to where I started to get my feet under me, and then, you know, I just kind of slowly but surely began to, had to, had to accept the fact that I was not going back to L.A., I was not going to be this movie star, I was not going to have this career that I had set out to do. And that's the thing is, like, like I said, when you get in your car and you have a direction you're going to head, life is going to take you different directions. Whether you like it or not, that's just what's going to happen. And even the people that it goes in the direction that they planned on, there's other things around that. It's not. It's that's not that success that you would have or you might have as an artist or whatever it is you're sitting out doing is not going to fulfill you in the long run. Hmm. It's just it will periodically, you know. And if you hate what you do, well, then that obviously that's no good. But it's going to fulfill you in one way. But unless you're finding a way to be fulfilled as a person and with other people and in connection and, and relationship, and that also feeds your art. And if you can't figure that out first, it's, you know, I mean, look at it. We see people, hugely successful people all the time who are miserable. Yeah. Well, you know, whereas you go to third world countries, some places, and you go to these small little villages and you see these people and they're so happy. It's all so relative. It's right here, right now. Always. Yeah. Like you were saying about the news, social media has obviously done a very similar thing with our individual lives. You only see this exterior of people, but you really don't know how they feel inside. No. And that's, it can be disturbing, you know, because you have this image of someone you want to be or be like, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not always a great thing to want, but you don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of projection that goes on in any relationship. You know, falling in love is the quintessential projection of, like, you meet someone and you're like, oh, my God, you've totally fallen in love, and you barely know them, but you already, you've already decided they're 
this type of person and hmm. you know and it might work for you know then eventually for a few months maybe a year it, it kind of fits that and now all of a sudden you start realizing who they really are and they start yeah. realizing who you really are and, <laughs> and that's when the real relationship begins <sighs> and that's the that's the problem that people don't want to think that they want to think there's that that soulmate out there that I'm going to meet and it's just going to work for it. and that's just not that's I'm sorry that's just doesn't exist. <laughs> people I know, plenty of people go, oh, he's so bitter. He's so, I was like, that's fine, whatever. I don't, I'm not bitter. It's just, there's a lot of people that you can have, and I have had relationships with. They're amazing people. But they're people. And eventually the honeymoon always comes to an end. But that's when, that's the real opportunity. That's when you go, okay, now who are you really? And this is who I really am. Now you can be truly vulnerable and truly open and truly create a safe atmosphere where you can grow together as people rather than this sort of guarded kind of projection of like this sort of false, not really reality of what this is going on here, you know. Because that's, that's way more work, at least at the beginning. Yeah. It feels like it's not. Although, you know, I've always said the hardest thing to, to do that you'll ever do is sustain a long-term relationship. Hmm. Get a job, keep a job, pay the bills, raise kids. Everything pales in comparison to, to sustaining a long-term relationship because you have to face yourself all the time. You have to be willing to admit I was wrong, to be able to say I'm sorry. You have to look at yourself. If you can't look at yourself, you're not going to have successful relationships. This seems like a very simple question, but how do you look at yourself honestly? I'm even having a very difficult time doing that, not necessarily with a relationship today, but with the work that I'm doing. And it also goes back to what we were talking about, you know, staying on a timeline, having deadlines for yourself. Mm -hmm. I like to think mm -hmm. that I'm doing great things, and mm -hmm. a lot of the time I'm sort of just kicking my feet up, you know what I mean? You know what? Good for you. Why? <laughs> because we're, we're a culture of, you know, get the A, be all you can be, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't waste your talents, uh, all this, like, you know, that's, that's Western culture, it's just so ambition and driven, it's yeah. like, ugh, ugh, exhausting, <laughs> I have had way more success and way more fun in my life since I let all that shit go, I don't need to be hugely successful and rich and all this, I really don't, I really don't. And since I let all that go, which was about 41, 42 when I read that book, it's, my life has just progressively gotten richer and richer and more amazing. Hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, I had a divorce, I went through a divorce. I mean, there's been, there's pains, there's sadness. That's, that's the way life is versus what you think it should be. Yeah. So your original question was... How do you look at yourself? That, that honestly. which is a very good question. And that is overused. That's a, you know, that's a thing that... It's like it's like anything else. You have to have skills. You have to be taught. You really truly have to learn how to do that. Hmm. That's not something you're maybe naturally, you know, you know. So we're three or four. We don't have any self consciousness <laughs> at all. We have no introspection. Right. It's all just like, blah, you know, blissful kind of a joy. Unless you're living in a horrible situation. Looking at yourself is really trying to be one of the things is trying to be accountable. And any time that there's angst in a relationship or something that's going on you've got to go okay wait a minute step back what am I bringing to the table here what is it that I'm doing you know insanity a definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again expecting different results yep you know and then there's the saying of like resentment is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die and so that's how we approach a lot of things because we don't want to we don't want to think that we're the ones possibly causing the the riff and that's the other thing is we go, well, it's either all us or all them. No, it's not. It's truly both of you. 50%, period, always. It's the two of everybody brings their shit to the relationship. And unless you're willing to own yours, and it's hard, and you're not always going to do it right away. And, you, you know, therapy, years of counseling. I had a great counselor just reading great books, meeting people, conversations like this. It's just a learning process, and you try things, and you go, well, that didn't work but I'm going to keep trying it because I think that should work. And then mm. it, it, well, guess what? It, it doesn't. How's that working for you? It's not. <laughs> You're insane. Yeah. You know, and so, and a lot of it too is not, is the biggest challenge is self-compassion. Like beating yourself up over the fact that you're not being ambitious enough, that you're kicking back and all that kind of stuff. Really what kind of changed everything for me was when I read that book and I started practicing meditation and started going to a Buddhist um, um, meditation center here in town and learning just kind of the teachings of Buddha and I'm not religious I'm not like 
he wasn't even he wasn't really he the <laughs> dude just understood the mind yes it's a practice he understood the mind and that the mind is a tool it's like a hammer you know and you can when used skillfully which you have to learn skills you can build a house hmm. but when it's you don't need the hammer it's time to put it in the toolbox and put it away <laughs> you can put that hammer in the hand of a three-year-old who doesn't have skills who doesn't have awareness who is that's our culture our culture is nothing but three and four-year-olds running around with hammers beating the shit out of each other that's all we're doing we see it in the media all the time yeah trump is the epitome of that <laughs> he is i mean it's just insane i can't even believe it and i know there are people who go oh that's bullshit and whatever i know hey you know, it's just, I, I just sit back and I just throw my hands up. I'm like, I, I'm not going to get caught up in it. I do, but I get aware of it. And I'm not going to let myself be pulled down into that black hole that I used to go down in when I didn't know how to be aware and look at myself. Beautiful. And looking at yourself as being aware of what's going on? What's the anxiety? What's the tension? What's going on here? <sighs> Step back, let that go. That has never served me. Anxiety, worry, fear, beating myself up has never, ever once served me, ever. This seems like a good place to talk about what children have brought to your life. Oh because I can, I can imagine that you've imparted many of these lessons onto, what tried? onto them. <laughs> they learn what you do rather than what you say. Yeah. I always say my boys have turned out amazingly despite my best efforts to mess them up. Um, <laughs> What have you learned from your children? Parents obviously teach children, but oh, I, yeah. I assume there's a lot to learn as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You learn a lot about yourself because they really do reflect you. Hmm. I mean, especially as they get older and they start to talk like you and say things like you and talk the way you do. And you're like, oh, my God, that is <laughs> just, I mean, it's, there are little mirrors walking around. You know, and I, I, was, I wanted to be a father more than anything in my whole life, more than being a f successful actor, anything. And I didn't even really realize that until later on that that was the that was the thing i was most passionate about and most excited about and i you know i think i'm a pretty good one i think my boys have backed that up first of all their love is unbounding it's just it's just it's the greatest gift because they show up and they're just they're nothing but love they're just acceptance and love and no judgments and running around and pure joy you know if you allow that uh and there's so much to be and that's just just like somebody you know cutting my heart open and pouring in love like constantly it's just it just fills you up and it's you know and then we get all bent out of shape about like well there's you know can't do that and there's and obviously you got to keep them really all you do as a parent is especially with boys which is what i had just you're just trying to keep them from killing themselves <laughs> for the first few years because i mean they're they're climbing on everything and you know they're just they have no self-awareness as i've gotten older i mean you know that's what i novel in itself what you learn from your children but to see them become adults you know we were texting last night we all know this bandata and, and they were giving me shit they give me shit all the time now of course because that's what I did I taught them so it's really fun really fun <laughs> we have, my oldest son calls me every day Whistler's on tour so I don't you know we don't, but when he's here we go out to brunch every weekend and I don't know I mean they just have uh, they've given me way more than I ever gave them in terms of happiness and joy and to see them become adults and to, to, you know, to have them call me up when they're concerned or, Dad, what, I've been thinking, what should I do here? To call me for advice is like, it just brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. It's just like, <sighs> sorry, I, I, I did something <laughs> right. You know, it feels okay. Like, I, I, that's the thing. I always wanted to make sure that when the shit hit the fan, the first person they called was me. I didn't want them going, oh, I'm not calling my dad. Oh, my God, he'll be so pissed off. And, uh, and that's like a lot of what kids say. Like, yeah, sure. Because, you know, Shep had a little, my oldest had a little thing in college, and the first thing he did was call me. And his friends were like, you did what? You called your dad? <laughs> Are you an idiot? You know? And he's like, no, that's the first person I'm going to call. Yes. Yeah. I, I was like, you know, and I see so many parents. Again, this comes back to that way life should be and the way life is, you know. And they're gonna they're gonna make them be the way they think it should be. Hmm. Period. You know, with gritted teeth, helicopter parents, you know. And then when the, of course, the kid wants to be, you just kind of water them and step back. And I don't kind of rambling again.
I love it. No, that I think uh, rambling and, and tangents and all of that lead to the best conversations oh, sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I know you got a thing here. I don't want to... No, no, you're awesome. But being respectful of your time, because we're coming up on our hour, Yeah. I'm well, going to pose some sort of rapid-fire questions, yeah. and you can take however, however long to answer. You mentioned both meditation and journaling. Can you touch on both of those practices and any other practices you might have, like daily routines, anything mm -hmm. like that? I started journaling when I was... Well, I would write things down even when I was in high school. I have some random stuff that I would journal <laughs> because I'd have these thoughts, and I would, I would think, God, I, nobody else around me thinks or talks like this. Like I, I, was, I felt like I was different. Um, and so I'd just start writing things down. Then when I, was, when I moved to New York and was starting acting school and everything, I started keeping a journal. I wanted, always kind of wanted to, and so I did. Like, not daily, but often. And I have, I mean, the stories I have in there that I documented of my early days in New York are pretty, I mean, it's just some really cool shit. And I, that's where I learned to become a good writer, I think, because I, I, you just write. Yeah. And I wasn't writing to write for something or anything. I just wrote, but there's times when I was really inspired and I wrote some pretty cool shit. You know, like I, occasionally I'll go back and look, and I kept a journal for 20 years. Off and on. When I was going through my divorce, I journaled every day. It was a way of just kind of getting it out. It was sort of purging and sort of... And then when I started meditating, which was right after my divorce, I quit writing in my journal. Because meditation and the power of knowledge was all about being present, being here in the moment and not projecting into the future or reliving the past, you know, because we had caught up in the anxiety of all those kinds of things, the unknown, or if I only would have done this, or... Oh, What's going to happen when? And you're just never present. Once I started kind of becoming more present and mindful, I didn't need to write. As a matter of fact, writing felt like I was reliving stuff, projecting, you know, because I was commenting on things that had happened or might happen. And it just didn't feel like the right thing to, not, not even the right thing to do. I just didn't, I wasn't, I just stopped doing it. And, I'll, and I didn't even realize it at first. Like, wow, I. I've been meditating. I don't. And I was meditating like a lot at first, first two or three years when I first started meditating, like almost every day, third, half an hour every day. And I do it maybe once or twice a week now. It's kind of, kind of slipped back off, but it's, that's okay. I think it sticks, you know? It's, it's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like losing your virginity. Once, <laughs> once, you, once you get that concept, you don't, you don't ever go back to not understanding that or not having some kind of oh, awareness. That's a great analogy. Oh, it's just like you can't unlearn awareness. Yeah. You can be less aware yeah. throughout the day and so forth. But once you understand that, and it's the greatest thing I've ever learned. I mean, it's the greatest gift. It's just, it helps me to just step back and go, okay, I don't have to get caught up in this right now. This is not my shit. This is not my thing. Or if it is, and I'm not quite sure what to do, I'm okay. I mean, one of my favorite sayings is don't just do something, stand there. You know, we're all about like, well, don't just stand there, do something, you know, even if it doesn't work, just people, it's like when people can't deal with other people who are going through tough times or a loss or something, they'll go, oh, don't, don't cry, don't be sad, don't do that. It's like, why would you say that? No, allow people their feelings. I always say, I, it makes perfect sense you feel the way you do. I totally get it. But that's because the people who are there, they can't deal with the other person's we can't, we have a hard time dealing with ambiguity <laughs> and not knowing what to do. Like, we can't just do nothing. It's so ingrained in our culture to just be able to sit back and be with things as they are, even as uncomfortable as they are sometimes. <gasps> People are just like, well, I, I, I just, I, I, well, I couldn't do that. Well, I couldn't sit still for a minute or two minutes. I, there's no way. I just can't, you know, it's like, <sighs> <laughs> So that's meditation and journaling, I guess. Mm -hmm. Any other practices? Uh, you also oh, you said daily, yeah. Yeah. Well, also because you mentioned this sort of uh, organization in your life, yeah. like little things, yeah. cleaning your oh, room. I'm, oh, yeah. I make my bed every day during the week, but not on the weekend. Not on the weekend. I give myself the weekend. <laughs> I never used to make my bed. My, when I was married, my then-wife hated that I was not into making the bed. And I was like, well, you know, now that I'm alone, it's like everything's... There's no kids running around destroying. I keep things, like I like things, you know. I'm super into baseball cards. Like, mm. I have all my baseball cards when I was a kid. They're all organized. 
they're journaled, they're like, I've got notes, I'm collecting, I'm adding, you know, it's like, um, I took all these slides, 300 plus slides that my dad had had for years, my family slides, and about four or five years ago, I got a projector and I went through every single solitary one of them and I took an Excel spreadsheet and I numbered every slide and I wrote <laughs> stories about them and I put them in, in, in uh, chronological orders best I could. Hmm. And identified whoever it was in those stories so my kids could have those Sunday. Like, I just love that kind of stuff. I get up every morning, I make the same coffee that I like. How do you make I've your coffee? I've got my little ritual. I have some ground, you know, the beans that I put into a, a print French press. Mm-hmm. And then I, I put in a tablespoon of uh, coconut oil, Ooh. Um, half a tablespoon of butter, yeah, and some soy milk. And I just kind of whip that up. Awesome, man. And that's my coffee every morning. So, yeah, I have little... You know, rituals, I love baseball. I go to like 20, 30 baseball games a year. Who's your favorite player, active or not? All, uh, time. all time was Carlton Fisk. I was hmm. a huge Carlton Fisk fan growing <laughs> up, you know, back when he was with the Red Sox. And I was a big Red Sox fan when I was a kid. And um, right now, I don't know. You know, I'm not a Joe Maurer hater, but I'm a huge Twins fan. Uh, <laughs> I love this kid, Byron Buxton, is going to be. I think he's going to be a superstar. He's he's phenomenal. Um, Jim Tomey was a fun character. You know, I, I kind of like guys more because of personalities. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's a good few right there. What advice would you give to your 18, 20-year-old self around that time? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think just what I told you, like, don't, you know, try not to put your self-worth in what you're trying to do, you know, and, and things are going to come along the way, and they're 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 going to be there's going to be successes, but there's going to be definitely failures and rejections. Try not to get too caught up in those rejections, you know, and and it's and it's okay, like it's okay, you're okay, you're okay as you are. You don't need to prove anything to anybody. I had to be the parent in my. I learned this in three years of counseling. I had to be the parent in my in my family. It took me till I got into my 40s to also then parent myself hmm. in a way <laughs> and sort of change that dynamic and realize that. So yeah, I think maybe something like that. Don't worry about sex. It's not nearly as. It's you're much better off just trying not to get so worried about it. <laughs> that's that's great advice, actually. <laughs> Learn to love people first. The sex is. You know, that'll, that'll come, no pun intended, sorry. But um, it's, <laughs> we get so, it's all about that, you yeah. know, and it's so not about that. It's so not about that. Instincts, but that didn't, it's hard that, to... That, that, didn't get, that didn't get great till well into my 40s. Hmm. And again, you know, that's because we practiced. <laughs> Practice makes better, you know. And you yeah. also get vulnerable and you get safe. And that's when you can really love someone. Hmm. Who are you impressed by in the Twin Cities community, whether that's other uh, theater makers, mm-hmm. musicians, organizations? Theater da is, they blow me away. <laughs> Everything I've ever seen them do. They did, they did a production of um, uh, um, Sweeney Todd, which I saw on Broadway Ooh. when I was 19. Didn't, had no expectations, and it still today is the most amazing experience I've ever had as an audience member of the theater. Just absolutely, completely blew me away. It was huge, huge, epic production. And I've seen a couple since. It's like, eh, the guys we did when she was, eh. <laughs> But Lottie Dodd did one last year. My friend Mark Benninghoffman played Sweeney, and it was awesome. Everything they've ever done, they're phenomenal. Who else? Gosh, that's such a good question. Well, my son's band, of course. Hey, I think they're doing Nice right. shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a miracle. I haven't really talked that much about it. Um, you know, I, I have so many good friends, and I... My buddy Dave is like, I don't know what I'd do without him. I mean, he's like, you know, we, we just hang out all the time and we just, friendships are just, you can't put a value on that, you know, and good friends are the greatest thing. I don't know, a lot of people, I think just a lot of people are doing a, a lot of great things. I mean, this, even though they're not the best drivers in this city. <laughs> um, no, it's a it's a great time to be alive in St. Paul and Minneapolis. Yeah, it is. Yeah, any uh, other books along with The Power of Now oh, that have gosh. shaped shaped oh, yeah. your thought Anything process? Henry Miller. I was a huge Henry Miller fan. I read I read him when I was living in LMA LMA thirties and Tropic of Capricorn and Tropic of Cancer. And my favorite book of his is The Colossus of Marusi that he wrote when he lived in Greece. 
brilliant, brilliant writer, genius, vocabulary that's insane, <laughs> and just a lover of life, just, I mean, a just lover of life. Saw the beauty in all of it. This is, I read that before I read Power of Now and started meditating and stuff. He really kind of opened my eyes to the world and to be able to see the world in a different way in a lot of ways. Lincoln's biography that Doris Kearns Goodman wrote is fantastic. Kurt Vonnegut. There's a, there's a lot of Buddhist authors that I've read. I really enjoy it. Like um, uh, Pema Chodron is one of my favorite Buddhist writers. She wrote a book that was plopped in my lap when I was going through my divorce. Then my older son plopped it in my lap completely. You know, it's called When Things Fall Apart. Hmm. And she talks all about how there's no ground under your feet. We're always trying to get, if I can just get then, if I can just get this, then that. If I can just, if I can just, you know, get, get some, get ground underneath my feet. There's no ground under your feet. It's <laughs> always moving. It's, we're floating down a river, you know, and people are flailing away trying to grab something to get a hold on so they're, so they're not, so they can grab a lifeline if it's a, a rock or a limb or something and then eventually that rock moves or the limb breaks and then they're flailing around to grab the next thing. Whatever it is, sex, drug, religion, work, whatever holic that is that they can grab onto as opposed to just like, you know what, I'm just going to let go. I'm just going to float down this river. The less you flail, the more you float. Hmm. You know, and then it's much more enjoyable. Oh, look at that beautiful tree! Look at those mountains! Look at that bear! Whoa, I'm gonna get over here or whatever. It's, you know, it's, like, it's just much more about flowing down the river rather than is striving. <laughs> Let's float. Let's yeah. float. And to wrap up here, yes. If people want to connect with you or mm -hmm. uh, learn more about what you're doing, sure. Along with this show, if yeah. we could get those dates, where can people connect with you? Well, I'm on Facebook, even though I try not to go on there any more than I possibly can. I don't really have any other, I don't know, just ask around. I don't know. On Facebook, <laughs> that's about the only thing. Yeah, this show opens March 24th um, for four, four weekends. Yeah, unless you know me or know somebody who knows me, I don't know. All right. <laughs> I don't that, really that works. Like a, that works. I'm not a promoter of myself, really. I'm not yeah. good at that. And I find that I... Things go better just kind of doing what I do and do what I love to do anyway. Yeah, it seems like it's going well. I really don't do a lot that I don't enjoy doing. If I don't really enjoy doing something, I don't really. Yoga is another thing. Like I, I do it twice a week. I should do it more. As I've gotten older, it's the only thing I can do where I don't get injured, and it is absolutely key and essential to my life and my happiness and my well-being. Well, Clint, thanks for the time. Dude, thank you, man. This is yeah. really fun. I hope I'll see you soon. And you know what? Good for you for doing this. Just keep doing it. Don't worry about it. Don't. I wouldn't try and like put a, you know, a, a, a rainbow at the end of the tunnel kind of thing on this. Just keep doing it. Just keep having conversations, and you'll be surprised. It'll lead to somebody will say this. Go, hey, you know what about? I was thinking about that. And this, you know, I can call you and this person, and, and you go, oh, sure, cool, yeah. I mean, that's just. When you're doing what you just love to do because you can't not do it, yeah, things just kind of work out. Not always. Yeah, you know, people think, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just go, you know, fucking play video games all day. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> okay, you know, you can do that. And I know kids who did, and they actually ended up designing them hmm. or testing them. You know, it's like there's ways because people, parents get all freaked out. All he does is play video games. You know? <laughs> Maybe he'll work for a company that sells video games or makes them or he milk with himself. You know, what I mean? who knows? Hmm. Who knows? Doesn't always work out the way you expect, no, but it can be better. Judging and, and shaming people for whatever reason, it never works. It only creates more dissonance. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Sure, man. Pleasure. All right, everybody. That is a wrap. Head on over to Theater in the Round Players to see Clint in Three Musketeers. I'll link to those show dates online. Hopefully you're following me on some social media platforms. But if you're not, go on over to my website. And there's links to each of those at the bottom of the page, along with a newsletter you can sign up for and get all new content delivered directly to your email inbox. I would greatly appreciate that. Another thing that would mean the world to me would be to visit the support page on that same website. 
Give me a rating or review on iTunes as it helps new listeners find the show and also consider arranging a per-episode donation via Patreon. Again, that is all linked up on the support page at chancebychance.com. Before you go, a couple of things. First of all, I'm planning to do an Ask Me Anything episode. I haven't really done anything of this nature and I just feel as you are... Putting hours of your life towards listening to this show, hopefully while you're doing the dishes or mowing the lawn, now that winter is ending, uh, driving along the road of life, <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping you can get to know a little bit more about me. So post questions to my Facebook page or my Twitter page, Chance by Chance on Facebook and Chance A. Gilliam on Twitter. You can also just message me directly with questions. Covering any topic, ask me anything about the podcast, about my life, about traveling. I would love to uh, to hear what people are pondering and take my best stab at it. Along those same lines, if you have an idea for a guest I might enjoy speaking to on the show, please also share that information with me. If you know them personally, feel free to connect us if they're okay with it, of course. I'm always looking for new people to invite The more the merrier, I always say. Until next time, everybody, take care, and thank you for listening.